Welcome to The Honest Pour with John Lennart, where we go beyond the bottle to connect you with the people and places that make each wine so unique. While you may not be growing geeky Trousseau Gris or making oddball natty orange wines, Dave Guffey, winemaker at Hess Family Wine Estates, is a maverick, not afraid to use American oak, which many winemakers eschew. He also blends his Montvedre Cabernet Sauvignon exclusively with Malbec, which he grows on the high, steep slopes of the estate vineyards. I met with Guffey to talk about the unique terroir of Montvedre, his commitment to sustainability and the Napa Green Initiative, and of course, taste some delicious wines. This episode of The Honest Pour is sponsored in part by Fooditor.com, bringing you the stories of Chicago's chefs, restaurants, and people who make food all over town. Fooditor.com. Hi, welcome to The Honest Pour. I'm John Lennart. Joining me today is Dave Guffey, Senior Vice President of Winemaking for Hess Family Wine Estates. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you, John. Good morning. I'm always interested to find out how people got into wine. How did you get into wine? Well, let's see. I think it started for me uh, all the way back when I was uh, growing up as a uh, young young boy and a teenager. Um, every summer I would go back to the family farm, which in our case was in Kansas, but I was born and raised in California. So every summer uh, the family would travel back there and I'd spend uh, either two weeks or as I got older, I'd spend a month or two back working with my grandfather on the farm. And that really got my taste for agriculture and farming. Fast forward to my college years, uh, I was working in restaurants, um, seeing the wine service go on, and developed an interest in wine at a very young age, and uh, was going to a school, uh, Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo, so the Edna Valley. So you're in near wine world there? In, in the early parts of Edna Valley. This was about 1980, and um, there were some wineries there, so I toured that, and, and ultimately the light bulb went on. I put two and two together and thought that would be a really neat career, and, and so I pursued it. Where'd you start out making wine then? Um, uh, I, I went to a really small place. Uh, once I decided to change my major and change schools to pursue the winemaking, I went up to a place called Felton Empire in Santa Cruz Mountains. We crushed a whopping 33 tons for the entire year. Um, some of the hardest work I've ever done, but it gave me the flavor of what cellar life was all about, and I fell in love. So I, I transferred down to Fresno State, where I ultimately got my degree in enology and viticulture. Um, but stayed concentrated on the Central Coast. So I bounced back over to the Edna Valley and uh, my first crush experience over there was with Corbett Canyon. Um, back in the day, we were buying grapes from all of the famous Santa Barbara vineyards. So I still look back at that and chuckle a little bit. Um, you know, Bien Nacido, Sierra Madre, um, uh, all the famous vineyards that have come um, to much more notoriety than they were back then. We bought and we put in um, our Chardonnay and our Pinot. Um, and so I had a great experience there. And then once I got out of school, I went to work for the Kendall Jackson family and uh, pretty much started the Cambria Winery right down there in Santa Maria Okay, Valley. sure, yeah. Worked there for a decade. Oh, great, okay. And then well, how did you end up at Hess? Well, that's a good question. You know, it's actually, uh, I had a great time in the Central Coast, a lot of friends, and we loved it there. With school and with work, we'd been there for nearly 20 years. Uh, my wife and I, and um, at some point after making Chardonnay and Pinot, Chardonnay and Pinot, I really had the hankering to get my hands on some Cabernet. And I knew if I wanted to make Cabernet, I had to go north because I think the most consistent growing grounds is up in Napa and Sonoma. And as fate would have it, I came back from a short holiday and there was an offer on my phone to come up and maybe interview for two different jobs in Napa Valley. And I did. Um, well, I chose Hess, actually, and, and came up and interviewed there. And within 
three months, I was I was on the job, on location. Wow. That was the exactly. spring of uh, 1999. Tell me about Hess. Tell me where it is, sort of a little of the history behind it. Well, sure. You know, when I got up there, I actually, I have to be honest, I had to research a bit of what Hess and Hess Collection was all about. And what I learned really quickly is it's all about Mount Veter, and that's the home of the winery. And so the way I think about it is Napa Valley is a really great place to grow Cabernet. Everybody knows it. But when you can get up into the mountain districts, it's sort of like having that that prime cut or that Wagyu, you know, slice. It's just a little <laughs> extra special. And so once I came up and, and looked at that, uh, the vineyards that we have up on Mount Veter, it was, it was undeniable. It was easy to see what drew Donald Hess there back in 1978. Um, he came to the valley. He was not really interested in the wine business. He came looking for a water company and an opportunity there to develop his business in water, um, as he had back in Switzerland. And when that didn't work out to quite his liking, he decided that he would stay on an extra day and taste some wine. He did it, long story short, fell in love, um, saw the potential in Napa Valley. Um, he befriended a gentleman back in the day known as Robert Mondavi. And um, Robert gave him some great advice. Um, and that's all Donald needed to go up to Mount Veter, secure his first vineyard. And we started off as a vineyard company first. And then a couple years later, um, the wine bug got him, and so we started to produce wine back in the early 80s. What is the terroir of Mount Veter? Well, Veter, you got to remember, we are, there's five mountain appellations in Napa. We are the southernmost, just looking over Carneros. And therefore, in Napa Valley, being south means you're closer to the bay. So we're the coolest mountain-growing region in Napa. Um, we also have the most diverse soil types. So there's a corny old phrase we use up on Veter, if you don't like the ground, move three feet. And it's very <laughs> often true. You know, you might have decent dirt on one side of the road and on the other sides it's rocks and boulders. Um, Veter is technically an old volcano, so we get a lot of that white tufa ash. So it really matters where you are in Mount Veter. It's hard just to say, oh, you're, you're Mount Veter, so you're this. It depends where you are and what aspect you're looking at. And I'll give you a good example of that. Our Veter Hills Vineyard is about a thousand feet in elevation off the valley floor. Um, that's our low elevation vineyard. It sits with clay over shale, about 14, 18 inches of, of, of clay, very limited root um, zone, and it's protected um, from some higher hills around it. So it, it's a little bit of a warmer climate there. Great aspect, we've planted just the tops of the ridges. But if you go up the road further to our Veter uh, Summit Vineyard, now you're on the top, you're at about 2,000 feet in elevation. Suddenly you can see the bay, you can see San Francisco. Wow. On a clear day, which is sometimes yeah, right, rare right. in San Francisco, you can actually see both the, uh, the towers on the Golden Gate Bridge. So now you've got the bay breezes coming in. It's a higher condition, but it's a cooler condition. So that separates itself away. I, I like to grow a lot of Malbec on the top because Malbec enjoys that cooler um, climate. I like to grow Cabernet on the bottom. If there's one um, dominating kind of characteristic that I see in a lot of our Cabernets, it's that black fruit, that blackberry, really rich, round, ripe kind of character that we can get when we, when, like in most vintages in California, we can express it because the weather is very warm and very consistent for us. How much acreage do you own, and are you using all estate fruit for the Hess Collection wines? Yeah, we are. We, um, we own five different vineyards around Napa Valley. Um, the five vineyards total up to about 1,100 acres. We are doing some replanting on Mount Beater, so our active acreage kind of is in flux right now. We're somewhere around 200, 225 acres on the three vineyards we own up in Mount Beater. 
I mentioned two of them, the Veter Hills Vineyard, we have Veter Summit, and we also have the vineyard right around the winery, which is Mont La Salle, and that reflects back to our um, Christian Brothers heritage, uh, as the winery was the original Christian Brothers winery, and still an active site for the brothers to come back and retire to the Mont La Salle property. Um, and then we have two valley vineyards, uh, I think we're gonna taste those today. We have our Hess Collection Chardonnay, which is right down off the San Pablo Bay. Um, very nice, cool uh, growing condition for Chardonnay. And we have our Alomi Vineyard, which is up in the northeast part of Napa. Where's so that? It's up in Pope Valley. Okay, yeah. So completely different aspect and character than now, you, you know, Mount Veter, I mentioned cool, mountainous. Pope Valley, very warm, um, very ripe, and expresses really, really nicely. Now, one of the big things that the Hess Collection is involved with is a Napa Valley green. Yes. Your green. Tell me about that. What does that mean and why is it important and how did you get involved? Well, we got involved from day one um, with uh, the, uh, uh, the Wine Institute trying to create what was, uh, you know, the, the blueprint for what is sustainability and how does it apply to wineries. Um, Napa green is associated with fish-friendly farming. And that's something that's really important for our vineyards. And it's just, it, it basically ensures that you're doing the right thing in your vineyard when it comes to things that a lot of people don't think about. You know, one of the biggest ways we can influence and be good stewards of the land is just by preventing erosion, especially since we're on the mountain. The hillside, right? And we spend an unbelievable amount of money um, between the inposts, as we call it, you know, doing the farming, farming for flavors, doing all the right thing. And it's not sexy and nobody talks about it, but we do a lot of things to um, prevent erosion from just the vineyard roads. There's a lot of dirt roads in these vineyards and people don't think about it, but that's where a lot of the erosion comes from. Everybody puts cover crop between the imposts, but what about the roads? So we've worked with the, uh, the local um, agencies uh, to develop systems. We use uh, diversion ditches. We use th things called rolling dips really exciting and what it does is just it prevents sheet flow sheet flow on the water so you can channel it to uh, before it really gets rip roaring and starts to erode you can channel it put it through uh, a select amount of drainage and channel it down to where you're not dumping the sediment in the river so um, napa green for us has been really important we're really proud of that and um, yeah sustainability has been a big deal mr hess donald started a uh, uh, had the first organic uh, growing uh, worldwide conference back at the winery, I think around 1991 or so. Um, and so for Donald, it's been very, very important since day one. Are your vineyards organic? Our vineyards are not organic, but we are sustainable. Before we talk about wine, let's talk about the winery. Earthquake happened yes. and it affected you guys. Tell me about that and where we're at in the rebuild and your guest experience is about to reopen, right? Yes, that's right, yes. The earthquake did happen. Um, we've had a series of unfortunate events with the earthquake and then most recently the wildfires of last year, uh, which were all around us. But let's focus on the earthquake. 2014, August, we were bottling um, at about 3.30 in the morning, uh, we, we got an earthquake. Um, I received a call from the owner about three minutes later. <laughs> and unfortunately, I was all the way up in Lake Tahoe. Oh, um, you know, yeah, for, you weren't close. Well, I wasn't close, but um, uh, coincidentally, it was actually the first weekend that my wife and I became empty nesters. My youngest went off to college. We thought, what better way to go? We'll celebrate. We'll have a good time in Lake Tahoe. We went up there. I received the phone call at 3.30 or so. I was on the road by a quarter to four. 
my wife was great. She drove the whole way back, and I was on the phone nearly the whole way back. It seemed like a, you know, it's a two and a half, three hour ride. It seemed like about 15 minutes with all of the phone calls coming in and the news reports coming on. Long story short is we were one of two, I mean, many people were affected, and of course, uh, many families lost their homes, and, and uh, uh, but in the, in the wine world, Trefethen and Hess, were, I think, were the biggest, most hit. Yeah. And so what happened to us is we lost uh, about 42,000 gallons of wine Oof. very quickly. Uh, we had a very old aspect of the, the wine cellar called Cellar One. It was still original Christian Brothers um, stainless steel tanks. And some of those twisted and ruptured to where we lost a good chunk of wine there. And we had a barrel cellar of about 4,000 barrels that um, quickly became a very um, dicey game of Jenga. <laughs> because they were just piled on top of one another and, and so it took us some time to unpile that. So it was a bit devastating, especially we, I got there about the time the sun was coming up. Power of course was still off and uh, just looking at the mess and, the, and the, uh, the challenge in front of us was something and it took us about a day to re-gauge re because remember no power, um, the region was down a bit. But by that um, very next Tuesday, uh, the day after, we were back in there starting to pick up the pieces. We got power back on, which meant we had lights and water and, and facilities to work with. And I was really proud of my team in the way that we responded because nobody was defeated. You know, we were all just ready to hit it. Just and, on the task at hand. And, and because we still had bottling, and don't forget, it's August. So we had well, grapes no, knocking coming up the door up. too. So okay. we got everything back in order in about a week, week and a half. <clears throat> Um, and then the, the rebuilding process started. And so this old cellar we called Cellar One went through a, a, a change and that change is just coming to the conclusion. We just got our occupancy, um, oh, two or three weeks ago, I think. Okay. So we've converted an old cellar, which had its, had its use, and, but we converted it and made it better. We made it a nice high-end red wine fermentation space accompanied with a really wonderful um, consumer experience that's possible in the room. So I've got uh, 20 small, very small red wine fermenters in there. Um, we run a, a high-end um, optical sorting line, and so yeah. the fruit gets the best treatment. Um, and it's gonna really be the, the, the new home and hallmark of our Lion wines and our Icon level wines. That's so we're, we're really excited to use it this year. I'm kind of um, salivating thinking about it right now. <laughs> was the art gallery closed during this rebuild period as well or no? No, no the gallery was open, albeit we had some uh, definite signs of, of construction right out the front door. So we won't miss that either. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you've never been up to Mount Feeder to the Hess Collection, the, 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 you could go there simply for the art and spend the day in that gallery. It's like going to the Art Institute of Chicago. It's a spectacular collection of art, but definitely go for the wine. Yeah. Should we taste some wine? Let's do it. We brought you um, a little cross-section of uh, some of our wines. We'll start with our Napa Valley Hess Collection Chardonnay. Great. This Chardonnay um, I'm really proud of. This is something that um, I've been working on since day one when I've arrived at the winery. This vineyard was planted in 97 and 98, and I got there in 99, so I was right on um, the start of this. Um, this is a, a different style of Chardonnay because we're focusing on Clone 809, which is a Mousquet selection of Chardonnay. So it has a very okay. faint, reminiscent um, aromatic of the Mousquet family. So think about white flower and tangerine, little honeysuckle. Definitely floral, definitely very floral. Yeah, very floral. 
and to to really pump up and, and show off that fruit and that floralness, it's a stainless steel fermented and barrel fermented. It's a very balanced style of Chardonnay. So the stainless steel fermentation, nice and cold, it, it, it traps and entrains all of the great aroma. Barrel ferment brings up the richness and the texture and the mm -hmm. viscosity of the wine. So 20% um, new French oak, about 25% fermented through malolactic. I want to retain the natural freshness. I want it to be just a slightly different look on Chardonnay. Okay, yeah, and, and I don't think, you know, people hear oak and mallow when they talk about Chardonnay and right away they, 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 they put up their, their defenses and they get concerned about it, but I don't think either of those things are predominant on the nose. I think this is, the nose is very balanced. Yeah, I can't tell you the number of times I've been at a consumer tasting and somebody will come up and it's like, well, do you barrel ferment your Chardonnay or is there oak in this wine? And, and inevitably I have to say yes, because there, there are some. And just like you said, they shy away, they want to run. And if I could just get them to stop and taste it, they're actually blown away with what you can do with Chardonnay. But that, that's Chardonnay. I mean, that's, it's a real, it's a winemaker grape. Um, there are a lot of very oaky versions of it, but you can do something different with this wine when you push your mind to it. What kind of lees treatment do you do on this wine? So this is uh, barrel aged for about 10 months. Even the stainless um, fermented portions, this is the moment it's gone dry, I stir the tank up so I get all the lees in suspension. I transfer it to old neutral vessel, um, old oh, neutral oak. Cool. And so I'm able to stir lees on all of it um, for you know the first six to nine months, and then we let it settle out, draw it off, and bottle it. Yeah, it's this wine. The word that keeps coming to mind on this wine is balance. There's the, there's a balance between the fruit and the acidity, and the creaminess and the spiciness, mm -hmm. and uh, really really very nice. Uh, is this from a specific vineyard or is it? Yes, yeah, this is from our Susquehanna vineyard down on the south part of Napa. Um, beautiful vineyard, par five from the bay, very, very close. Very cool, very windy, just a perfect growing condition for Chardonnay. Next we have a brand new, and I literally mean brand new Chardonnay. We call it Panthera. So if you've noticed on all of our labels, you've got the lion, this is part of the Hess family crest. And so in that line of thinking, we've developed this Russian River Chardonnay. Oh, cool, okay. Called Panthera. Um, this is now 100% barrel fermented and 100% ML. But the, uh, the beauty of Russian River is that sort of that stone fruit, you know, kind of combination with just a little bit of citrus. Mm -hmm. It really makes these wines a lot of fun to work with. Russian River is just a really special place. Talk about, you know, a place where, uh, different aspect can mean different things. It's hard to just pin it down. It depends where you are in the Russian River. Um, a lot of microclimates over there, and this wine really reflects some of the best, I think. Yeah, this is uh, quite a bit richer in body than the Napa estate. And it, 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 it does, it, it yeah. expresses that kind of, that round rich stone fruit rather than that bright uh, green apple and lime zest that I think the Napa showed. And, it's just and, a nice different expression of Chardonnay. Yeah, and that's, you know, that viscosity and that bur that's what barrel fermentation and, and that nice kiss of new French oak will give to you. Um, you just need a wine that can stand up to that, and that's what we think we have with this Russian River. Panther was just released um, this month. Oh, really? So this so, is a brand new... Brand new release. Uh, is it available in the Chicago market? It is, know? yeah. There's, there's, a, there's a bit of a savory element to this as well that I'm finding. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's, you know, I think a lot of the toast from the yolk comes through and it kind of finishes with that nice richness from that new French yolk. Great. What do we have next? Let's go to Cabernet. All right. I'm going to mix it up on you a little bit. I've got a couple of reds. Um, this first one is our Alomi Cab. This is the one that's grown up in Pope Valley. Okay. This is a 200 acre vineyard that we've been working with. This too was planted in the mid 1990s. And I got on scene in 1999, just finishing up the planting of this guy. So this is sort of the post phylloxera replanting. And this is, you, you really came on right when those first, uh, first wines were being made from those vineyards, huh? Yeah, this, in this case, it was, uh, this was a, a, an old turkey ranch that we purchased and, and converted it into a vineyard. But this is, um, I, we did a really good job planting the vineyard. Um, Cabernet uh, predominantly, we also dabbled and tried some unusual things, but that's not common or uncommon if you know Donald. So we had some Tanat growing up there. Oh, cool. Because that was the start of Donald's love affair with Argentina and South American wines. Um, we had a little bit of Malbec that uh, we grew up there, um, and Petit Verdot and a little Petit Syrah. The Tanat and the Malbec didn't quite make the cut, and so after five or six years of working with that, trying some different things, we converted that over to either Cabernet or more Petit Syrah. So um, this, this wine is, uh, what I love about this wine is since we made those adjustments in the vineyard, it's amazingly consistent, every vintage. Um, this is our 2016, which you know still makes me do a head turn, because this wine uh, is on premise in a lot of different places around the country. Um, of course, you can find it in your wine shops, but it's an amazingly consistent wine, and, and it's developed a really nice following. So, hence the 2016 vintage being available right now. The idea behind the wine is to represent the Po Valley and the terroir. So and you're what gonna, would that be? Well, you're going to find really generous fruit, right? Right off the bat, as soon as you smell it. Very ripe, very giving, um, almost a plum-like, really rich, sweet, round. But not in an extracted way, in an elegant way. Not a, not a super jammy way. Right, no. exactly. Mm -hmm. To match this fruit, I, I add on just a small little layer of about 22, 23% um, American oak. That's new. Oh, really? Yep. And so this is a combination of French and American, but the new portion is is always American oak. I have one cooper in Napa where I can go down and watch the coopering of the barrels. Medium plus toast, and it, that medium plus really matches the ripeness of the vineyard just perfectly. Yeah. Makes me want to drink it. <laughs> it's been known to happen. First of all, it's a baby. But yeah, there's that rich fruit, huh? This, is, this wine's about the fruit, but it's backed up with that good oak. And sometimes people hear American oak and they turn their nose up at it. And oh, it's making it all coconut and vanilla. And I don't find that here at all. I find it just sort of provides a structure and a backbone. Yeah, I mean, two, two points you just hit on. I mean, number one, you're absolutely right. And all American oak, in my opinion, is not created equally. Um, you can still find the dill and the coconut and the, the over vanilla aspects in some coopers and some um yeah some of the barrels but that's why i trialed um many different american oaks as well as french and settled on one it's uh, we use Demtos. it's a uh, coopered right there in napa it's a great cooperage um, and they're super consistent they've got a great supply from missouri for this vineyard it matches and i guess i'd add on that when you have a state vineyards like this and you work with the same vineyard source just like these or the mount beater or the chardonnay it really allows a winemaker to 
hone that in because if my variables of the vineyard change constantly in sure. terms of source, then I'm gonna you know take my best guess. But when you have your estate vineyards, it allows you to really um, turn up the focus on what that vineyard likes and what it needs. But the other thing that you brought up was the you know the fact that it is a 16. You know, it's got great fruit coming out of the nose, but and it's got good structure. It's got the tannin, but they're not drying, Mm-mm. right? It's like chewy and all over the palate. And that's another thing that this region and this vineyard gives us. It's really ripe and round, um, nice structure on the palate. Yeah, sometimes in a real youthful wine, those tannins can kind of like reach out and kind of grab you and you yeah. feel like you wear a wool sweater on each of your teeth. Yeah, you need And these aren't that, these are, it's very fine. Yeah. And um, makes it very approachable young, particularly for a Napa Valley Cabernet. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right, that's our Alomi. Next, we have a, another relatively new wine. It's a red blend we call Lion Tamer. Um, this is our second vintage. It's 2015. This is an unusual wine. And what makes this wine cool is that it is a red blend that's based on Malbec. Um, I'm a big uh, fan of Malbec. Um, I've been a fan of Malbec uh, since joining Hess because um, my first vintage there, we had a brand new three-acre piece of Malbec first crop. Um, we didn't know what to expect. Um, uh, when we harvested the fruit, it was stunning. I'm, I'm a fan of good Malbec. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of Malbec out there that I kind of compare it to Merlot in the early 90s and mid-90s where just kind of flabby and characterless and yep. just round fruit and nothing else. And there's a lot of that kind of Malbec out there. I'm a fan of good Malbec, so interested to see, see well, where this lands. So we, so from that three-acre experience, you know, the next vintage, great, next vintage, great. I started to build our, our Malbec supplies in the vineyard, and I did it because when you grow, when you're talking about Mount Viterkab, it's different than Napa Valley. The challenge in Mountain Appalachian is to not have that super structure, right. drying tannin. Um, they're great age-worthy wines, but it does come with some, uh, you need to finesse those tannins. Malbec for us was a wonderful thing to blend. Better than Merlot, better sure. than Petit Verdot. Yeah, that makes it great. It, it has great middle weight on the palate, mm-hmm. and it doesn't have the drying tannins in the finish. So I grew the Malbec. Uh, currently, we farm about 33 acres of Malbec. Quite a bit. Pretty sure it's one of the biggest Malbec growers in Napa Valley. Didn't do it for the statement. We did it because we, need, we wanted more and more and more. And so I'll blend my Cabernets uh, with a good dollop of Malbec to help naturally soften them. But like I said, what makes this wine cool is it's 50% Malbec. And 50%, okay. no other red blend in, in Napa, Sonoma that I can think of that bases itself on Malbec because it's just not grown. No that. one has enough of it. No, it's, <laughs> it's Cabernet's becoming very dominant out there. Sure. Um, and so this is a really cool blend. When I, when I blend this wine, I think about richness. I think about ripeness. Um, and so we, we blend Malbec 50% and then add in 23% Zinfandel. A little bit of cab, 6% cab, little Petit Verdot, little Merlot. Sounds like a super fun blend. Petit Syrah, boom, nice purple purple element. And then at the very, very end on this vintage, we added in 2% Morvedra, which sometimes 2% means nothing, but in this case, it meant everything. What did it mean? It elevated the fruit. It just popped the fruit out of the, uh, out of the glass, out of the aroma. Um, it was one of those cool blending experiences where you sit there and you go like, well, let's try it. And, you, and we did it and it was like, oh my gosh. This is it. This is uh, a lot of flo- flour and rocks. That's mm-hmm. what I get on the nose. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, that's a drinker. That's a drinker. Yeah. Yeah, some wines are like they're so serious about themselves, and you got to have food with them without them being any good. This is a drinker. Yeah, this is the wine when you bring to a friend's house on Saturday night. That this is the wine that you watch evaporate on the table, and it goes down really, really quickly. Um, but we call it the Lion Tamer because I like to use Malbec to tame the tannins of Cabernet, and so Lion Tamer we thought was a clever play on words to reference what we like about Malbec and, and keeping in our tradition with the, with the lion. Mm -hmm. When you get to know the wine really well, you can just call it the tamer. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's got that Malbec cherry, but there's, it's got body to it, which is what turns me off from a lot of Malbecs is there's no body to it. There's great structure to this wine. Surprised it's Zinfandel's in there. That's yeah, kind we, of a surprise. Again, we, we thought it was unusual, but we wanted to do it. So Zinfandel and Napa um, is challenging to find, but we found some. And I won't hesitate to go over the hill to Dry Creek to find some really good Zin and sure. bring it over and, and blend it along with the, uh, the other varietals that, that are there. Wow, that's tasty. That's a, like I said, that's a drinker. Yeah. That, yeah we, uh, we think we have a... Barbecue on a Sunday afternoon. I'm a pretty happy camper. Yeah, we think we have a winner at this one. It's a second, um, second vintage, and so... Uh, we're really happy about it. Terrific. We got one more wine. Well, you know, we couldn't come all the way out here and, and taste without bringing our Mount Beater cab. This is the one that started the whole party back in the early 80s. So, uh, this they, is a 13. This is a 13. Current release? Yeah. Wow. Current release. Our wines, you know, with that bigness of uh, structure, um, the wines are always vintage date plus about four, five years on the market. So, it's two years in the barrel, and it's at least one more year in the bottle before mm -hmm. we will re release. And it's just been that way forever. Um, and I'm really proud of that as a company that we've held that line because it would be easy to release this wine earlier and earlier and earlier like many other people have done. But to really give it its best due and, and to give the consumer their best um, shake, it, you, we gotta hold it back. Sure. It's people, a big wine. I say it's committing infanticide often. <laughs> the other thing that I love about Mount Vitor wines, and I, I, I needed to learn this when I got there, um, was their ageability. Because I think so often ageability is perhaps um, overestimated on some wines. Really? And I think the Vitor wines are something that will really last the test of well, time. Particularly go, 13. Yeah, this, uh, this, is, uh, you know, this is all estate grown. This comes off of our three different vineyards. Um, this is 82 Cab and 18 Malbec. That's it, just Cab and Malbec. Yep. And this is uh, two years in the barrel, about 65, 70% new French oak here. It's a big Cabernet and it really needs the extra new oak just to match the structure of the wine. But on the nose, there's a lot of finesse. It may be... That's Viter. Yeah? Yeah, I think it's Viter. Um, a lot of restraint, a lot of elegance. It's right. not going to show itself. It's not going to be so obvious, you know? Mmm. Great black currant and dark, dark berries and a little bit of plum and... And what do you think of the structure? There's great balance. It, I mean, the fruit is, it pronounces itself. Right. But it's backed up by good tannin and bold tannin, but still fairly fine. Yep. Um, they're not grippy at all. And the acidity backs up that full body. And that's another hallmark of Viter is the acidity. You don't see that in a lot of wines these days, but Mount Viter seems to retain its acidity. And if there's one thing I've learned over the nearly 20 years I've been up there is, is how to make these Cabernets just a little more refined, not so rustic, because they want to be rustic. 
they want to be big and drying. Um, and so it's a real challenge to farm out in the vineyard to get these right flavors, um, to get it to the right ripeness level, and then to do the right things in the cellar that makes a, a very ageable Cabernet, but it's something that will, you know, it's fairly young at 13. Yeah, it's, it's like still this. a baby. I want to see this wine in, well, I want to see this wine a few times. I want to see this wine five more years and 10 more years for sure. Yep. Pretty special wine you made there. Well, Dave Guffey, Hess Collection, thanks so much for your time. I recommend that next time you go out to Napa Valley, take a left turn off of Highway 29, head up Mount Veter, go check out a world-class arts collection and taste some delicious wines at the Hess Collection. All right, John, thank you. Great tasting with you. For John's tasting notes on the wines from this episode, go to www.thehonestpoorpod.com. Make sure you catch every episode by subscribing to The Honest Pour with John Lennart at iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Play Store. Also, be sure to like us on Facebook at The Honest Pour with John Lennart and follow us on Twitter at The Honest Pour. This has been The Honest Pour with John Lennart. Music by Kevin McLeod. 